As you know, we just got back from a 7,000-mile motorcycle ride, and as we rode through one mountain range after another, I kept thinking it couldn't get more majestic, but it did. The Rockies, the, the Tetons Glacier, the Canadian Rockies, Canadian Glacier, Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, Mount Lassen, the Red Cliffs and Canyons of Utah, and then the seacoast, the Redwoods, the, the inspiring Redwoods, just one amazing sight after another. And I, I expected to be blown away by the scenery, and I was. One thing I didn't expect to see, however, but which seemed to be everywhere, were dinosaurs. No, Jurassic Park wasn't on our itinerary, so they weren't alive. But town after town had life-sized dinosaurs along the roadway, most of them beckoning travelers to stop and buy whatever it was they were selling. And sometimes the dinosaurs we saw were real, at least their fossilized bones were. I even saw a Tyrannosaurus rex skull in a high-end fossil and gem shop on sale for $375,000. I splurged, and I bought a dinosaur tooth for $18. <laughs> You know, dinosaurs capture our attention, as do dragons. And last time we studied together, we witnessed the dragon's attack, as seen in the vision given to John in the 12th chapter of Revelation. We saw how Satan, pictured as a dragon, was waiting to devour the Christ child when he came to earth. Obviously, Satan failed in his attempt to destroy him. And in the battle against him, he even lost the right to accuse us in the presence of God. He thought he had won when Jesus was nailed to the cross. But in allowing himself to die, Jesus actually paid the penalty for our sins and then rose victorious from the grave. The dragon was enraged. And he responded by changing tactics, focusing his attack on the church, causing the persecution the church was experiencing at the time. But God had made provision for the church. And Satan soon discovered he could not prevail against it. So he refocused his attack once again. Since he couldn't devour Christ and couldn't defeat the church as a whole, he turned his attention to individual believers. Now, this would indeed be bad news for us if we had to face the dragon alone. But thanks be to God, we don't have to. We now have the Spirit of God within us and the guarantee that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we have the church to surround us and nourish us and insulate us from the effects of Satan's attacks. Satan's only hope for success is to therefore make us lose faith in Christ and to tear us away 
from the church. This he is now trying to do. And he's not doing it alone. He has indeed called up all the forces of evil in his attempt to drag individual Christians to defeat. And the visions John shares with us in the 13th chapter of Revelation picture two of Satan's chief allies in the battle for our souls. The beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. This morning we're going to take a look at the first of these allies of Satan, the beast from the sea. We're going to see how it manifested itself in John's day and how it manifests itself in our day. And what our response must be to this beast. We begin with the beast in John's day, Revelation 13, verses 1 through 4. And he stood on the sand of the seashore. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Now, the text isn't clear in verse 1. Whether it is John that stood on the sand of the seashore or the dragon. That's why some translations have I and other he. But either way, our attention is soon focused on a horrendous beast that comes out of the sea. As it emerges, John sees ten horns and seven heads just as he had seen on the great red dragon in the sky. But the diadems or crowns, instead of being on the seven heads, were on the ten horns. So the image is changing. The crowns are not really on the beast itself, but on the source of its power, symbolized by the horns. John then notices that blasphemous names are written on the heads of this monster. Then as the beast emerges from the sea and continues to emerge from the sea, John notices that its body isn't the body of a dragon like expected, but the body of a leopard. And as it steps onto the shore, John notices its feet are like those of a bear. Then he says something very hard to picture. He says the beast had a mouth like the mouth of a lion. Now, it sounds like the beast only had one mouth, even though it had seven heads. Where it was located, anyone's guess. 
This vision is very strange indeed and very difficult even to visualize. But it shouldn't be all that foreign to us or to John's original readers because its primary features were also found in one of Daniel's visions. In the seventh chapter of Daniel, we have pictured four beasts coming out of the sea. The first was like a lion, the second like a bear, the third like a leopard, and the fourth was a terrifying beast with ten horns. It appears that John's beast was a composite of Daniel's four beasts presented in reverse order. And since Daniel's beasts were identified as four kings or kingdoms, usually identified as Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, we have our first clue as to the identification of John's beast. We begin to expect that John's beast should also be identified as a kingdom or a government. That thought is then reinforced. When we read that the dragon, or Satan, gave this beast its power and throne and great authority. And since Satan is the god of this world, his power and throne would no doubt have something to do with earthly authority. John also noticed something especially peculiar about one of the heads of the beast. It appeared to have been slain. But the fatal wound had been healed. It almost sounds as if this beast is mimicking the risen lamb we saw in chapter 5. A lamb that had been slain, but was now alive. The lamb we identified as Christ. And this beast is unquestionably the opposite of Christ or an anti-Christ. Now, I almost hate to use the word antichrist because there's so much confusion about the nature of the antichrist. Some teach that the antichrist is an individual who will come at the close of the age in a final effort to lead Christians astray. And they generally identify him with the beast we have pictured here. Therefore, casting this vision totally into the future. But the only place in Scripture we actually find the word antichrist is in John's first and second letters. And there he makes it clear that anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that he is indeed God come to earth in the flesh, is an antichrist. And he specifically states that many antichrists had already come by the time he was writing his letter. So I believe it's wrong to call the beast of Revelation the Antichrist and force him into the future. Besides, what relevance would that have had for the Christians living in John's day? Would they really need to know about some future Antichrist when they were currently facing an Antichrist of their own? And who could doubt that they were indeed facing an Antichrist in 96 A.D. As we mentioned before, Domitian was the Roman emperor at the time, and he had resurrected Nero's policy of persecuting Christians, even expanding it beyond the city of Rome. 
And with that in mind, I think we ought to look at this beast from the sea, not as some final antichrist, but at least for the believers in John's day as Rome itself. The seven heads and ten horns can be seen to represent seven emperors from Augustus to Domitian with the three extra horns representing the three individuals who struggled to gain power in the 18 months of confusion in the empire following the death of Nero. The blasphemous names on the heads of the beast can certainly find a parallel in the names that the emperors took in an attempt to make themselves into gods. They insisted that they be called everything from simply divine to Nero's the savior of the world and Domitian's our Lord and God. And the slain head that came back to life finds an amazing parallel in the belief that Nero, who killed himself in 68 AD, would come back to life and continue his reign of terror. Many saw a fulfillment of that expectation in the reign of Domitian. So the beast from the sea may very well picture the Roman authorities who literally came from the sea to Asia Minor, who arrived on the shore with orders to persecute Christians who refused to join the rest of the world in worshiping the beast, offering to Rome the praise that belongs to God alone. In Exodus 15:12, we read, who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? But here in Revelation, we discover that the whole earth had been so amazed by the resurrected power of the beast that they worshipped him and the one who worked through him, declaring, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war? With him. Surely the beast from the sea was the Roman Empire in John's day. But that is not to say that the beast from the sea died with the fall of Rome. For as we read on, we discover that the beast still exists. Verses 5 through 8. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them in authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. The picture of the beast now expands beyond John's day and into the future. For we read that the beast was given authority to act for 42 months. Now, we've seen this equivalent of three and a half years several times in Revelation already. Half of the perfect seven. 
It's the time during which the holy things of God will be trampled underfoot by unbelievers and the time during which the church will be nourished and growing and witnessing in the world. In other words, the three and a half years, the time, times, and half a time, the 42 months, or 1,260 days, all represent the period of history from Christ's first coming and ascension until his second coming. And it's during this entire time that the beast has been given authority to act, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies against God and everything that is holy. He's also been given the freedom to make war with the saints and to even overcome them. During the entire church age, the beast is allowed to be used by Satan to attack God's people and to overcome them if they cut themselves off from Christ and the church. In fact, John tells us the beast has authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. So who is the beast today? He's, in essence, the same thing he was in John's day. The beast is the government. It's government that has been given authority over every tribe, people, tongue, a nation. The beast from the sea in every day, in every age, is government. Now, some might object. After all, doesn't Paul call government the minister of God, ordained by him to ensure justice on earth and to punish evildoers? Indeed, he does. But like everything given to man, government can be perverted by sin. Satan can make a beast out of government. And God allows it to happen. While it is true that the dragon, that Satan, is said to have given the beast his power and throne and authority on earth, ultimately, we must also recognize that it is God who has given the beast the authority to act. God allows governments to become instruments of Satan. Just as he allows individual men to become instruments of Satan. And the atrocities perpetrated on mankind by evil governments are ample testimony to that. Who would doubt that Rome became an instrument of Satan when it executed thousands of Christians? And who would doubt that Hitler's Third Reich was an instrument of Satan when it exterminated millions of Jews? That doesn't mean that God lost control when these things happened. Only that God can and does use instruments of Satan, even evil empires, for his purposes. No power on earth can thwart God's eternal purposes. And God can even use the beast of Satan to accomplish his will. 
That's not to say that he sanctions what the beast does or that the beast is his minister for good, only that God is able to use anything, even a beast controlled by Satan, for his purposes. Nevertheless, government can become an ally to Satan and a beast that makes war with the saints. So how does it happen? How does the government change from being a minister of God into an instrument of Satan? I'm convinced governments stop being ministers of God when they start seeing themselves as God. When the emperors declared themselves to be gods, they ceased being ministers of God. When Hitler chose to ignore the laws of God and declared himself to be the Fuhrer who could promulgate laws by decree, he ceased being a minister of God. And if our country assumes the role of God, it too ceases to be a minister of God. For when any government begins to view itself as the supplier of every need and the protector of every perceived right, it sets itself up to become a god for its citizens. Sadly, America has become such a god for far too many people. And when people turn to government for the solution of all their problems, they, in effect, join the masses who worship the beast. I trust, however, that we are like the believers in John's day who refused to worship the beast. That we, too, are the exception mentioned by John. In the 8th verse, John said that all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast except for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, the construction of that verse is a bit confusing. Some translators put from the foundation of the world after those whose names have been written, affirming the fact that God knows who are his and has known such from the foundation of the world. Other translators put it after the lamb who has been slain, affirming the truth that the sacrifice of Christ has been a part of God's plan, even from the very foundation of the world. Either way, it confirms a truth stated elsewhere in Scripture, so it really doesn't matter where we put it. The real point of the verse is that true believers never bow the knee before the beast. They never worship at the feet of any government. They never look to government as their savior. So how do we respond to the beast? Let's see what John told the believers of his day. Verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword, he must be killed. Here 
is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Now, admittedly, this 10th verse is a bit hard to understand, and it's been interpreted a couple of ways. Some see it as a warning to those who would persecute the church that if they take Christians captive, they will be made captives. And if they kill believers, they will be killed. But that doesn't seem to fit with a final statement about perseverance and the faith of the saints. A better understanding of this verse might be that John is telling Christians not to go too far fighting against the beast. Not to rebel against government. Not to take up the sword. Instead, they should be prepared to endure whatever hardship the government brings upon them for their refusal to worship the beast. If anyone is forced into captivity, as had been John, he should accept it as the price to be paid for his faith. If anyone is threatened with a sword, he should be willing to die for the faith. Now, the word destined isn't actually in the text, and it probably shouldn't be. It gives the impression that there is nothing that can be done to change things. That we should just accept whatever happens to us as destined to happen. But many times God does give us the opportunity to change what may appear to be destined to happen. And as Americans, we've been given the freedom to change many things in our government. We're very grateful for that. But there still does come a point where we have to be willing to accept the consequences of our faith. And if God allows us to be taken captive or to even be killed or allows us to be destroyed financially, we must accept the fact that he has allowed it. He can stop the beast anytime he wants to, and someday he will. But it's not our place to usurp God's authority and try to defeat the beast ourselves. Having said that, we cannot allow the beast to defeat us. We can't bow the knee to him. We can't place the state before God. And in that way, we do resist him. But we're not to take up the sword against him. God is still in control. And he can use even an ally of Satan for his purposes. So there are some things we leave in God's hands. The primary aspect of the battle we need to concern ourselves with is our persistence in maintaining faith. If we'll do that, the beast can't defeat us any more than the dragon could defeat Christ or the church. Victory is secure for us, even in the face of the frightening opposition of a godless government. 
And even if a government isn't totally godless, if out of charitable motives it simply begins to think of itself as every citizen's provider and protector, we still refuse to bow the knee and begin looking to the government to do for us what God himself wants to do. No matter how strong the temptation might become to begin worshiping at the feet of government, we place our trust in God alone. If he chooses to meet some of our needs through the agency of government, fine. That's what it is there for. But we must never allow our uncle in Washington to replace our father in heaven. And that's so easy to do. We've been blessed in this country. Jesse deals with countries that are godless. Persecution abounds there. The beast is devouring them. We've been blessed in a nation where we're not devoured, but we're still tempted to bow the knee to government. The scripture applies to both. Who do we trust? Who do we trust? It's so easy to get caught up thinking that the government will take care of us. God alone is our provider. And protector. So what about you this morning? Where is your trust? Where is your faith? I pray that you're not trusting in the beast, but in God alone. Let's stand and commit ourselves to that.